You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this episode, we have two topics. One is a rant on open floor plans. And the other, Kelly, what else are we going to talk about? Talk about dogs and dog sports. Dogs and dog sports. Before we get to those topics, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., Eric of Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Dutch Girl, Mary H., Stephen T., and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcasts and blog, you can link in the show notes. You can find a link, excuse me, in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. Well, good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Eric. We're sitting here in the living room. Of our house, which is very noisy. Very noisy this morning. And because, busy. Yes, there is um, a... Uh, shall we say, misguided remodeling project going on across the street. <laughs> Spare them your criticisms. Yes. There is remodeling going across the street. Quote, unquote, remodeling. There's a giant toilet tanker trunk pumping out something there, and um, and they're, uh, what, they're spreading decomposed granite around. It's yes. very noisy. Um, meanwhile, there's helicopters and planes flying low overhead because it's L.A. and it's like Blade Runner here. And um, There's a dog chewing on and something. There's, yeah, I've given the dog a bribe, which is he's chewing on loudly. You might hear that. And the cats have to be involved, too. There's so. a cat sitting on the mixing board that I'm using right now. <laughs> you have to move his butt to, cha- to move your knobs. Exactly. <laughs> And the other cat's sort of guarding the whole situation. Yeah, so excuse the background noise on this podcast. But Kelly, you sent me a article that Which you knew would... delight you. It was yes. an early Christmas present. When I read this thing in the Washington Post, I knew that Eric would just jig with happiness. Yes, because when you're a lifelong contrarian, as we are, we are contrarians. We're in a world of Elon Musk and we're pushing low-tech stuff. That's what we do, right? So we're by that... Very quality, we are contrarians. Every once in a while, we get vindicated so (laughs) righteously. So has this long-term hatred for open floor plans. Open floor plans. And and a a futile sort of quixotic defense of... Of of pokey old houses, yes. he loves pokey old houses, um, the kind of houses that people will you know instantly. Um, if if someone gets a hold of a pokey old house nowadays, they just get gutted and flipped, um, and uh, and nothing bothers him more. And so, I have to hear about this around the house a lot. And so when rant, I find yes. this Washington Post article that basically says that these new houses that have been opened up and um, refurbished with modern materials and modern furniture are complete death traps. (laughs) And pokey old houses like ours, you have up to a half an hour to escape after the blaze starts. Um, I knew it was like Christmas for him. So I sent that to him and he's been literally talking about it for a week, (laughs) even though, you know, the post has gone up, he's still crowing about it. He's still Still so happy. It's like a a little kid with a toy. He's got this grin. He's, he's, he's ecstatic. So he wanted to spend most of today's podcast crowing about this. So (laughs) but going into it, into it in in more detail, Uh, I should, I should be clear and say that if you have a modern house, that's great. Okay. I'm not, I don't have anything against like a nice modern house with mid-century furniture in it or whatever. What my problem is, is, is people in our neighborhood who buy hundred year old houses and turn them into mid-century modern houses inside. 
And it, as it turns out, there are some unexpected consequences. And I wrote a blog post with the, our friend John really hates it when I do this, but the, the title of the blog post is Your Open Floor Plan is a Death Trap. And, <laughs> it's subtle. Um, and it sounds like clickbait, but actually it's, it may be an understatement. Uh, I was really, basically the Washington Post article linked to a study that underwriters laboratories did several years ago. So it's sort of old news. I don't know why it it came up again. Clickbait. Clickbait, I guess. (laughs) They were just recycling content. But the underwriters lab research was stunning. And there are videos that, that back up uh, what we're about to talk about. The videos are great. The videos are amazing. And as it turns out that um, if it, basically what this research does is you begin to see architecture, not through the eyes of its residents or of an architect or a builder, you see architecture through the eyes of a firefighter. And in that case, it has a totally different, you know, it's a totally different way of seeing things. So, what what this research found out is because since since the mid 20th century house uh floor plans have changed very dramatically and it we live in a house that re- kind of miraculously got un was was never remodeled because it was so neglected ni- <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> neglected since 1920 and it it has a, almost exactly the same floor plan with a few small modifications but it's a small house with lots of small rooms with lath and plaster and early 20th century double hung windows. We need to explain all those what things. Lath and yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Right. But first, I think we should go and look at what an open floor plan is because in an older house, there were lots of small rooms. So the kitchen is totally separate, it has doors between the kitchen and the rest of the house. To keep kitchen odors out of keep, the house. And also, I think, so you don't see the servants was the other thing, right? I don't um, know if anybody with our house would have had servants. It's hard to say. This they might a, have, actually, but um, it's hard to say. But in larger homes, you know, when yeah. people had, like, day help more commonly, um, uh, yeah, they would, there's, the old houses will have little, like, um, there's a house uh, not much bigger than ours up the street that obviously has a little... A servant's door going into the kitchen. Oh, I've never noticed that. Um, yeah, the guys on the corner. Anyway, okay. they have they have oh, a, right. they have this really sweet little tiny back or side porch sort of that you can see from the street with a little door that goes straight to the kitchen, and you know that must be where the day help would come and go from. Right, um, and that wasn't that's not a grand house. But the trend is when you buy these houses now, and it's it's it, you see it on, of course, HDTV, all the fixer upper shows. Right, you see them. The first thing they do is take out the walls between the kitchen and the living room, and they basically make a giant, uh, large open space out of most of the house. Right, uh, and uh, what the underwriters labs research shows is that, you know, they basically have this formula, open floor plan plus uh, big, modern, large furniture, you know, your large overstuffed sectional couches and lazy boys, plus new construction materials equals, in their words, faster fire propagation, shorter time to flash over, rapid changes in fire dynamics, shorter escape times, shorter time to collapse. Oh. Yeah. And uh, so that open floor plan combined actually with the 
trend in much larger houses. Houses have, if I'm not mistaken, since 1920 doubled in size, the average house in America. Uh, Taller ceilings, too, you see that. Uh, These open spaces make it um, more likely that a fire is going to get going faster. And then once the firefighters arrive, it's harder to put out a fire in a large space. In a a small room, you can just close the doors and and fill it full of um, water. And uh, that'll often just put the fire out. But when you have this big open floor plan, it's much more difficult to put out. So that open floor plan is a contributing factor, but also the large furniture, too. This was, this was also interesting. Large couches with lots of foam in them um, make for a larger fire. And in the video that UL has that we link to in the blog post, and I'll link to in this, um, in this um, podcast, you can see they set a, they basically set up a, a traditional living room with what kind of an old style couch with cotton batting in it. And then they have a new kind of house with a big couch with lots of foam and then um, also lots of plastic things because we have more, oh, there's a dog peeping in the background <laughs> there. Um, so basically they have a traditional room and a and a room with lots of modern furniture side in by it. side, side and by then side. they set them each on fire and and then you watch how the fire progresses in each one and um it's it's just amazing the traditional uh, room you've got about a half hour before it just turns into a it flashes I mean, you over, would be in trouble right? sooner than that but it flashes over at a half an hour whereas the flashover on the uh, modern room is Was, three minutes yeah three minutes that's not enough time i mean if you fell asleep on the couch and your scented candle, you know, um, started a fire in your living room, you, you would be lucky if you woke up well, um, in time to right. escape. And you don't have any time to get the dogs and cats out. You just have to get out uh, in that kind of fire. Yeah, in a modern situation, I mean, there is no... It is amazing how the... Is how, oh, dear... <laughs> <laughs> another dog um we had to the all the animals had to wake up and get um pesky the <laughs> God. that's a bone being dropped in front of me he wants me to play with him um they they all had to wake up just in time for the podcast despite the fact that they all usually sleep in the morning um oh well okay but back anyway, to the uh, uh, yeah so, so back to the, the the point is that um you don't have time. You don't have time to do You don't have anything. time. And worse, by the time the fire department shows up, it's over. It's, it's the a fire department yeah, inferno. It's, yeah. it's frightening. It really is. I don't want to be like some alarmist, like, you know, morning show host, you know, clucking about this. But it's really, it really is um, shocking to see how fast the fire progresses in an environment like that. So the open floor plans are a problem. The synthetic furniture is a problem. Um, also, I'll add, uh, I did a little research on this, uh, chipboard burns a lot faster than hardwood does. So your you laminate, like yeah, I mean your cabinets, your laminate flooring, your all of IKEA these things. Your Ikea furniture is made IKEA, out of don't chipboard. Don't get me going about Ikea. <laughs> no, we don't want to go there. Don't, we don't want to <laughs> go there. Uh, but it all catches on fire a lot faster than older Furniture and so older hardwood building materials. Hardwood flooring light up um, not as fast. As you know, the traditional floor was three quarter inch hardwood. Now we've got lots of laminates. Those catch fire 
I think, twice as fast. Mm -hmm. So that's something to think about. Well, I mean, if you have, you know, a modern house, maybe instead of laminate, you might choose something fireproof like tile or concrete floors or something like that. Right. Or hardwood. That might help save you um, in the conflagration that's coming. Well, but of course... Well, you know, the thing I mean, is, there's, all I'm these thinking things, about mitigation factors. Well, if you already live yes. in a modern open plan floor house, what can you do to of course the, temp- this? the temptation to go with the laminate flooring is because it's a lot cheaper and mm-hmm. people are not necessarily going to live in their house very long. So I think, well, I'll just you know put this in, and five years later I'm going to move. So what do I care? Mm-hmm. You know, tile and hardwood flooring are a lot more expensive. While we're on the topic of building materials, I was also really shocked about this one, that traditional lath and plaster works better than drywall on a fire. So So let's define what lath and plaster plaster is, right? So lath and plaster is a bunch of, uh, in in the West Coast anyways, I don't know where else it's done, uh, uh, what other kind of materials are used, but it's uh, redwood, thin strips of redwood uh, tacked to the... the, um, the the ceiling uh, excuse me the walls and the ceiling and then over that is screeded plaster what yeah what's that word well they 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 screeded? you know, yeah you you put the plaster on the wall and then you pull a you know a, a board down to smooth it out it's oh, very so they're, very they're hard they're smashing to do. they're kind of smooshing the plaster between right. the skinny little boards actually there's several la- it's done in several layers as a base coat uh, and then I think two more coats that are done. I, I actually took a cl- an earth plastering class where we did this process with an earth plaster, mm-hmm. but it would be the same as with a, a gypsum, you know, with a plaster. And this is what they did before the invention of, of drywall. drywall sheets. Right. right. Now, so. unfortunately, lath and plaster is very, very hard to do. It's a skill. Yeah, it's a skill. We that did. Is I, lost. I, I took a three-day class. I by no means can, do I feel confident I could do it. Uh, and it was backbreaking and very, very hard work and very frustrating. And very, it, obviously, it's a highly skilled uh, task. Because they would just screed over the... Um, the lath. The lath, and then, but then they just keep smoothing and adding more and more plaster until the wall was built up, right? Right. It's all, it's all one piece. I think it's a three-coat... Pro- well, th- so let's get to that. So the problem in a fire with drywall, which is in four-by-eight sheets, is all the seams. And what happens is the seams blow out and the fire shoots between the pieces of drywall and gets into the wall. It's getting air from the outside? Well, it's just the fire they... goes through the, the, the cracks in the, in the drywall sheets, whereas a lath and plaster wall is one continuous piece of plaster when it dries. Mm-hmm. It's a solid mass. And plaster doesn't burn well. No. But if the, the fire goes through it, which it will with through drywall... The seams, yeah. Then it gets in the wall, and then the whole building goes up. So that was shocking, actually. That, and one of the things I'm curious about uh, with with these um, with an older house is whether this was a conscious thing. Were were houses designed with the idea that they were better in a fire? I don't know. No, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think they. I mean, they didn't have. Like they didn't have sheetrock as an option. They, what? How, they had no other way well, to make they, walls. Small rooms, things like this. I don't know whether it's just a cultural practice or whether fire was a consideration. I know that you know there were code changes after bad fires in the 20th century, so there were oh. things that were done to change 
the way buildings were made. But I I don't know how conscious this these these ideas were. Now what's I what's would... certain what no, but what is interesting is that no one's looked at the changes until Underwriters Laboratory started digging into this, mm-hmm. like the open floor plan thing, the drywall. No one really tested this. Now, in it's interesting, in a commercial building, there are um, a, lot of, a lot more stringent ideas about how, the, how big the room, you know, uh, open plans and things like this. Well, I mean, there's like, I mean, most commercial, I think of commercial buildings as being tending to be more open, like factories and mm. warehouses and, uh, well, off- or are you yes thinking about no. like office buildings that are full of, yeah, they, they, even office buildings will have like those floors full of cubicles. Yeah, but they consider fire and there's fire doors and things like that yeah. in commercial buildings that apparently is not considered in residential buildings. So that was interesting. So there is this, so there's this issue with this, this building material of drywall versus lath and plaster. Uh, what, another thing that shocked me was it turns out that, that the old kind of windows, the double hung windows that this house has, that most houses, you know, pre- I don't know, 50s, 60s have. But that traditional have been, wooden windows. That have been discarded and right. mass. Um, we were, <laughs> Eric ran across some sort of home improvement trailer last night and we were watching it. And I was like, don't do it. You'll just get mad. And it, they were, uh, this couple was going to flip an old house and they looked at um, some windows that looked exactly like ours. Fine, they were our windows. And they're like, well, these got to go. These are too old. You know, because nobody wants to take the time to fix the double hung windows, but it's. It's possible, and they're they're beautiful windows, and we're going to do a video about that, right? I don't at least a blog post. I've done some in the past about how to fix old windows. They're perfectly fixable. I'm going to do some more because I'm working on some more of the windows in the house. What what now? I want to read actually what the Underwriters Laboratory says about windows. Uh, they say the legacy window, in, a, in other words, the older kind of window that we're talking about, was held in place with a putty-like substance, and there was a room in the frame for expansion of the glass during a fire. Mm. The modern glass was fixed very tightly into the frame with an airtight gasket and metal band to provide better thermal insulation. This configuration did not allow for much expansion and therefore stressed the glass as it heated and expanded. So what happens is in a fire, these modern windows break blow out. and then oxygen floods in the room. They're, they're by feeding the fire. the fire even more, oh. the, the sectional couch fire or whatever. <laughs> uh, so it, it turns out that traditional windows are better in a fire, at least. And there are actually, it should be said, there are ways to make them more uh, uh, airtight. I know that we're in a warm climate, so it's not as much of a concern, um, but there are ways to uh, put in insulation in them. Actually, a very clever way. Someone who knows what they're doing can do this. There's actually an article in um, Fine Home Building Magazine. Maybe I can, it might be behind a paywall, but um, they have a Really nice article on how to um, insulate old windows oh, by, by putting you basically you cut a groove in some of the bottom of them you stick rubber insulation in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Great way to save money too because new windows if you get nice new windows those are very expensive so you can mm-hmm. you can rehab the old ones easily. So then we already talked about home size that was the other factor in this because some of the larger homes that people live in are, are more of a fire problem. And then there's ceiling height. 
ceiling height, we talked about that. So you know, the, the conclusion is an old house with traditional furniture is a lot safer than a modern home plan. Um, but one thing we didn't talk about is clutter. So the clutter in our houses also feeds the fire. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> That's your personal hobby horse. I'm sure people have always had clutter. Well, no, actually. No, I, I disagree with this. Mm-hmm. Eric has this, uh, I mean, I mean, people used to have fewer clothes, certainly. Um, There's not a lot of fewer closet toys. space in this house, is there? There's not a lot of closet space. People no. did have, but, you know, still I, I keep thinking about like these um, old uh, Victorian photos I've seen. People... Uh, it's 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 That's gruesome. True. Victorian but clutter. Vic- That's I've seen topic. Uh, like photos right. of even uh, of you know from whether they're rich middle class or poor Victorians certainly had a lot of clutter. You know. Um, but remember now, this is I'm a I'm a big defender of the early 20th century vernacular house. Yes. And I think that this period is it, it maybe the the peak of American sort of architectural ingenuity in terms of the vernacular building the the i'm not i'm not talking about building designed by architects here i'm talking about your bungalow your bungalow court like, yeah. you know that period from the early 1900s through 1930 or so when the economy took a, a dive but i think that that period which which was interested in actually reforming some of the problems with late 19th century victorian clutter and architecture you know, there was this idea of, of reform. And so you see in, in houses of the early 20th century, you see the the clean tile bathroom and the kind of decluttered kitchen. Well, there, right? was, a, there was that cultural Sanitary, interest in sanitation. Right, exactly. And, you know, hygiene and sanitation was very important in right. that period. So, yeah. So it was sort of a reform of that Victorian thing. Not, I mean, I actually have a fondness for Victorian clutter, too. So it's, you know... <laughs> I like Victorian stuff, but um, so yeah, I'll I'll leave that because I'm not enough of a cultural historian to possibly know like what the clutter levels were like in the 20s, um, the teens. Maybe it was more minimalist then. Um, things were, um, I don't know. I you know the cost of living, uh, the way budgets broke down then. I mean, I know that um, like one of the most expensive things, um, one of the most the biggest breakdown in budget was was a clothing and food they were very 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 expensive and it's funny because clothing and food are some of the cheapest things we have now well yeah um but so you could see how that would really change uh the way the inside of your house looks there wasn't the consumer there was the beginnings of consumer culture but not nearly to the extent that we have now there's mm. no nikes and you know things like that and uh the, the inhabitants of this house didn't have no, that going. No, they so. had like, you know, the lady of the house had her Sunday dress yeah. and her uh, working dress and her going out dress. You know, like she had three dresses. Um, and, and those cost a significant amount of money. And so she took care of them and wore them out and passed them on. So we had a lot of response on I expected we'd get some response on this from, from readers and in both on our um, – page our blog and in facebook and uh, some people had some i thought some really good points here someone uh um someone named crew girl uh said on uh on our, our blog i wonder how open floor plans built with natural materials cob straw bale straw bale clay straw etc fair and fire conditions and i think the answer is they would probably do a lot better 
So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, yeah, they the, would have they would have oxygen and airflow, but they wouldn't have um, there wouldn't be fuel. Yeah, so. it's definitely brick and uh, well, uh, actually, we're not talking about brick here, but we're talking about um, straw bale, clay, etc., earth, earthen materials. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I think that those would um, offer more fire resistance. Actually, and and so the class I took was in earthen uh, plastering which is the same as as lath and plaster mm-hmm. with um with plaster so it's the same idea we have a solid math mass of non flammable gunk yeah making your exactly. walls exactly yeah. so definitely i mean there's some concerns concerns with earthquakes where we live with those types of structures but there's ways to deal with that mm-hmm. um so i think that so that's a good point uh people just say uh, people were shocked, like I was shocked, you know, that um, that, that this hadn't really been considered, you know, the, the fire safety mm-hmm. and the changes in the, in the way we live have, have not been. I'm sure firefighters know about it, but um, not, not just, you know, normal people, right? So then there was, so there were other, other people who pointed out the earthen plaster uh, idea and then some other people regretting that had <laughs> taken out kitchen walls, which is kind of funny. Regretting because of fire or because you of know, no, they, Because they hadn't thought of... Well, no, just because of the fire issue. Because right? we've had this... Um, didn't you have a blog post a while back where you were ranting about open floor plants and people were defending... There's some pushback. I mean, I understand people like it. I, you know, it's some, a, there were a few people, contrarians like you, who were like, "No, I want to be able to close off my kitchen and no one right. can see it." So you, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, but then there were a lot of people uh, were defending their open floor plan houses and saying they enjoyed them very much. Yeah, right. Which what's is sort you of know, fine. But also, what's <laughs> the dog has brought out a third toy to share with us? Um, what's I think particularly disturbing is that. Open floor plans are are made specifically to appeal to families with children because, you know, parents could be working in the kitchen, keeping an eye on the kids while they're watching TV in the great room, which is fantastic. Um, But these are these are the the people who are most vulnerable, it seems to me, to fire. Um, And then they're living in spaces which are most vulnerable. Yeah, it's that's bad. I don't know if we can put the genie back in the bottle, but I'm certainly <laughs> pushing for that. Eric wants everyone to live in a 1910 bungalow. <laughs> yeah. I, think we should, I don't think well, it's going to happen. I think we need to push it as a lifestyle. I think we need a lifestyle. I, we were joking about a lifestyle magazine called uh, Pacific Ready Cut Living, which is the kit house, the kit company that built this, this house. But uh, <laughs> as opposed to Dwell Magazine, which seems to be, oh dear. <laughs> the dog <laughs> we'll ignore the dog barking. Oh, am I going to edit this out or? Uh, oh, okay. No. <laughs> I'm going to edit this out. You need to go take care of that. Okay, we're back, Kelly. We're going to wrap up this discussion pretty soon, but I did want to share um, two two funny comments in Facebook on the open floor plan discussion. One is from Eric Wright because there was some joking in Facebook about having a, a, a plan so open that there's a toilet, just the, the bathroom has no walls. Uh, well, there's a Japanese there house There is a Japanese like house that an architect built that actually has no walls at all. It just, isn't it all glass to the outside? Actually, I think there's even no glass. It's just open, totally open. It's sort of an architectural joke in a way, you know, or uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's got kind of like a roof. 
and a floor and no walls at all and everything's just sort of open, you know? How pleasant. Right. It actually is, it's very beautiful. It's in a very beautiful location. On nice days. <laughs> right. But there was, there was some joke, because if you take the open floor plan idea to its logical extreme, you would have no bathroom walls, mm-hmm. which actually, I, I, come to think of it, I was in a modern house out in the desert that had a glass bathroom. Mm. <laughs> that was totally open. But uh, Eric Wright uh, says uh, that he had an open toilet in Brooklyn long ago. Back wall lineup went like mop sink toilet cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Disinterested parties would politely wait in the street while facilities were in use. So (laughs) here you go. Oh, gosh. Um, and, and then there was one other funny comment, which maybe five other people will find funny, but our friend Nick, who went to UCSD with us, uh, sent me an article that was a kind of a, a fake resignation letter from Chip and Joe of HGTV's Fixer Upper, in which they explain that they've left the show in order to embrace uh, 1960s brutalist concrete architecture, <laughs> of which UCSD was, of course, a prime example of that. But again, five like people will find that funny, but I found it very funny. Anyways, so that's that's um, that's my rant. Um, maybe we should move on to something else. I think I'm totally vindicated, but you know, whatever. People can disagree, I suppose. But, but somehow I doubt that uh, we're going to culturally turn around and start, you know, making little ticky boxes like I like have this. Hope. I have. Everybody's hope. going to live in ticky little boxes. I have hope that things will. We'll turn around. And craftsmen will reemerge yes, who we'll know how to do small, lath and plaster. We'll have and, small dark rooms. And molding will be vindicated and they'll be molding again. Yes, there'll be lots of molding. Molding everywhere. No ceiling cans. No ceiling you know. cans. Yeah. No laminate floors. There'll be just um, just traditional windows and small couches with cotton batting. So that's, anyways. It's a vision. Hardwood everywhere. <laughs> Oak. Dark oak. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, how much of this is a, a regional thing. It'd be interesting. Maybe we might get feedback. I, I, I you know, I, I'm just saying that, like in, like LA is a particularly weird place because our property values are just so insanely high, uh, and the people with money to afford these properties are very much at the moment culturally influenced by the Dwell magazine aesthetic. So as people with money uh, buy old properties in L.A., their, their inclination is to, um, is to revamp uh, and modernize. But that might not be true everywhere. There might be pockets of the, of the country that um, – or, or the well, I don't know. I can't even speak to other countries, but in, in the U.S., um, you know, what's going on in the Midwest? I don't know. Like, maybe there's more love for traditional architecture. Maybe well, but remember are... that the world's been flattened by media. So, know, so everything have, is like HGTV. Yeah, exactly. Everything is like HGTV. And then I remember this very funny article I read, uh, a bunch of designers wondering why mid-century modern has not 
Because that trend's been around for a long time. Why, and why they're not? Why we're not tired of why it? Why we haven't we moved, moved on. on? Yeah, I think it's because there's nothing to move on to because we're so culturally bankrupt. We can't come up with another style. I don't know. No, <laughs> what be, are we going mean, to do? <laughs> I, I have a. I mean, there's very nice mid-century modern stuff. Don't get me wrong. Oh, it's right? beautiful. It's it can be, very it beautiful. Can be beautiful, yeah, but it's exactly. a bit tyrannical here in Los Angeles. Right. It's, I don't know. Everything is like that. What happened to the Prince of Chins? Remember the Prince of Chins? Oh, the like Laura Ashley looks yeah. of the 90s <laughs> exactly. and 80s yeah. and everything was floral and country, country um, kind of uh, estate right. sort of looks. But um, but but we're 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 getting off topic. Yeah. Oh, May- and not to and it's just because to add to my former comment, just so as not to see, sound so parochial, I'm also aware that like especially on the East Coast, a lot of the little houses are very old, so they have yes. things go way back, and those houses tend to be perhaps more protected. And one or things are made out of brick too, and things are made out of brick. So and there might be more of an industry for restoration. Uh, on the East Coast than there is on the West Coast, where we've always been sort of... Well, even... We, we've always disregarded history Right, on the even West Coast. Northern California, Southern California, generally the construction quality is better up north yeah. for whatever reason. At the same time, we do have a huge collection of early 20th century small houses here in LA, which makes it kind of interesting, as yeah. well as some very beautiful old buildings downtown. So Yeah, yeah. There's some nice architecture here people don't realize. There's a lot of and a lot of it went untouched, you know, especially a lot of downtowns in America got turned into parking lots, but un, it's, thankfully here there's still a lot. I mean, there's a lot of parking lots, but there's still a lot of very nice old buildings here that people generally don't think of L.A. being like that, but it actually does have some nice nice stuff. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, Hollywood uses some parts of downtown as a stand-in for New York in shooting, right. and for good reason, you know, if you see some of these buildings. And then this was kind of an uh, um, experimental ground for a lot of those early 20th century arts and crafts kinds of ideas, as well as just the, the standard bungalow. And the bungalow court. I mean, there's a whole bungalow court that I really think is a, a really nice um, idea. Bungalow courts are fantastic. Um, we lived I wish in there one. were more of yeah. them. Very nice. Anyways, uh, let's, let's move on to sports for dogs because we have a, a very pesky Saluki here. Joining us on the podcast. I think we've, you've explained what a Saluki is before, but I probably should repeat that. You got a dog? Well, there's been requests in... for more information about the yes, dog. so um, go ahead. <laughs> so I don't even know where to start. So I got a dog in, um, back in April or May, early May. Uh, he's 11 months old now. He's a Saluki. Uh, Saluki is a kind of uh, sight hound, so he looks a little bit like a greyhound, but with long, um, long, uh, flowing ears. His he I don't know for some reason he always reminds me of Leif Garrett, which which just dates me, but like um, like a seventies or eighties um, pop star boy, you know, with their long flowing hair. Um, that's why I always think of when I look at him. Uh, but yeah, he's a, he's about 40 pounds, but taller than any 40 pound dog should be, uh, rail thin, super smart, um, very difficult to, um, you don't train him. I've never had a dog, uh, I've never had a sight hound before. And the thing about these hounds is that, uh, they're very independent minded. So, um, he has no innate desire to please me. So mostly I have to, uh, sort of coerce him in, in different ways into, um, 
into training him. So training is very different than with, well, our last dog was a Doberman, you know, and Dobermans are bred to please uh, and to serve. And so I would tell him something once and he would never forget it. Um, and this, this dog is just sort of like, well, you know, I'll do it today if I feel like it. Maybe not. So what have you been doing with him? You've been doing nose work? So maybe you should explain what yeah, nose well, work is. Yeah, well, I thought is. that um, uh, if just just to... Give this is mostly just to give people who are not interested in open floor plans and building <laughs> materials something to, to to listen to. And I thought maybe people might be interested in knowing more about dog sports because I'm doing a lot of going to be doing a lot of dog sports with him. Um, he's getting to the magic one year age where I can put more stress on his bones so I can do more things with him. Um, right, you know, up until now we've been doing puppy stuff, um, but I, I. I endorse dog sports so strongly. I, I think so many um, family pets are sort of left to molder. And I understand, you know, everybody's busy. But if you can make some time to take a class with your canine companion, it will make him so much happier. It builds confidence in dogs who are shy or lacking confidence. It burns off energy in dogs that are troublesome and pesky. Like this one is, he's chewing on my microphone cord right now. Stop that. Is my sound quality okay? Yes, you're good. Okay. Um, I, it uh, strengthens the, your bond uh, with your dog and makes makes him more eager to please you. There, um, And it gets you out of the house and you meet more people and sometimes you even exercise. So there, there's many advantages to doing some dog sports. Um, he's chewing on the mic cord. Hey, Saluki. <laughs> Saluki. This is all a little on the nose here. Okay, you need to go do some dog sports. So, um, oh, one yeah. dog what is, sport. What is nose work? Well, yes, nose work is um, my favorite dog sport. It's um, it's uh, competitive sniffing. Like all dogs sniff. This is such a great sport because your dog can be old. Your dog can be out of shape. Your dog can even be troubled. Um, anti, a little, you know, antisocial or not good with other dogs or other people, and they can still do nose work because nose work is done um, alone, like not side by side with other dogs. And so um, it, I've seen dogs who are aggressive and antisocial actually improve because their confidence improves, and then they um, they lose some of their um, shyness or aggression issues you know, through work. So it's just it's professional sniffing. All dogs sniff. They are pro sniffers. Um, and so young, old, like I said, it's big or small, they can all do it. Of course, there's some like, you know, there's bloodhounds and stuff who might have a bit of a, a advantage in the field, but, um, the working dogs who want to please, um, you know, maybe are a little easier to work with, but all dogs are great sniffers. Uh, and what you do is you teach your dogs to look for, um, particular scents. It's based on the protocol established by um, drug dog training. And so you start with hiding treats, um, and uh, the dogs sniff out the treats, which is quite natural for them. And then you swap the treats for um, scents, um, strange scents that they're unlikely to find otherwise, like clove oil or birch oil uh, or anise oil are the most common ones. Um, and those will be on little swabs or something hidden 
hidden in different places in a building. Usually you're in a class and you're working in some public space like um, the training rooms of an animal shelter or uh, an office park or something like that. And um, the dog just learns to sniff out these scents and then they're, they're rewarded when they find the scents. Uh, and it becomes... Um, uh, really about team, it, it's it's a team sport. You, as the handler, um, need to learn as much as the dog about how to read your dog so that you can identify real finds from false finds. Um, it, but it becomes a competitive sport when you go to trials and you have judges with clipboards watching you and you walk into a space uh, an unfamiliar space, and you have a certain set amount of time for your dog to cover that space and find what's to find in there. And you know, you you, you know, maybe they'll if they miss uh, if they miss a scent, you know, you get points docked. If they um, uh, falsely identify something, points docked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's how you get your your ribbons. And it, and there's uh, multiple levels of it, and it. I, I'm not making it sound as exciting as it is, but it's actually really fun, and dogs love it. Un, unlike any other sport where, you know, you feel like if you're doing obedience with your dog, you know, for instance, you feel like sometimes you're doing, you're, you're kind of coercing them to do things that naturally they wouldn't want to do. But they love sniffing, and they love the sport, uh, and it's, it's great. And it doesn't require much from you athletically or anything, so if you have any... Um, you know, if you're not too mobile or whatever, you can still do it. So all ages, all ability levels can do it. And it's called nose work, canine nose work. Uh, so look for it in your town. Um, we can link in, is there a nose work association we can link to in the show notes? I don't know if it's that organized. Um, right. well, there's I'll, nose I'll work look. classes. Right. Um, Northwick trainers. Um, it's been spreading. It's not a very old sport, uh, so it's been spreading for maybe the last ten years or so. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, no, a more popular sport is agility, which our Doberman was cos- uh, comically bad at. He, he was scared he was of the agility of the course. Agility the- is like dog obstacle course. It's like a dog obstacle course race. So there's different obstacles. Like there's a there's a tunnel that they have to go through made out of, you know, it's like a nylon tunnel. Um, there's a A-frame that you run up one side, down the other. There's a plank you have to walk. And, of course, like the Frisbee dogs sort of <laughs> own this sport. Which they the should have Australian, their own. Australian, Australian shepherds, shepherds right? They just, because uh, between their that, speed yeah. and their trainability and their size is perfect because they're, they're not too big and not too small, so it's like they should have their own uh, their own competition and leave their other dogs, you know, alone. Um, if you have one of those, you probably already know about agility. <laughs> but um, our our poor Doberman, yeah, he was scared of the tunnels. We could never get him over that, and he did not want to walk the plank, which I can't blame him for. Now, um, I'm going to start agility with this dog pretty soon, and it's going to be quite the challenge because. Um, although the Doberman wanted to please me, he was too scared of, uh, these, these obstacles to, to do it. Um, uh, my, uh, Saluki loves obstacles. One of his favorite things to do is to go to, um, I go to playgrounds after dark and let him climb on the jungle gyms. <laughs> he really loves, <laughs> he really loves climbing things and leaping over things. I, and he loves tunnels. I think he, um, will be unafraid of the obstacles, but, um, 
whether or not he'll run them on command is going to be uh, another issue. Now, um, agility is much more active depending on how you, um, your coach and the way you run it. It can it can require some running um, on the handler's behalf, so it can be a fitness tool for um, both you and your dog. Um, your dog is certainly running, and you probably are running. Although some people manage to do it from uh, handle from a more stationary, you know, through gestures, um, but generally you're you're sort of running alongside your dog through the obstacle course. So it's a good way for you to get fit too. Um, and a third sport um, I um, am going to do with him as soon as he's one year old is called lure coursing. And lure coursing is um, is a sport that's particularly good for um, sight hounds. You know, um, although there are open competitions where all breeds can and and mixed breeds can uh, compete, but it's specifically for for your sight hounds. Um, and it's uh, you know they're bred to chase. And um, they're, uh, what they've done is tried to make this as safe as possible. So uh, lure coursing events are held in fenced-off fields um, that hopefully are groomed enough that, they, um, that the dogs won't you know, trip or hurt themselves or get bit by a snake or something like that. Um, and they, uh, run, they run a lure on a retractable line, like a motorized line. And the lure is just a plastic bag. And uh, they chase these at high speeds. Um, and the dog is doing distracting things for both of us now. He's um, scratching the couch, trying to bury, bury his bone underneath some blankets. Um, but lure coursing is um, is a great way um, for your. It, it's it's like, kind of like nose work. It's something that dogs do so naturally. There's no training for for lure coursing. Essentially, um, there's there's some qualifications you have to meet, but it's not like you have to work with a dog to get them to chase something that's moving. It's they delight in it, and uh, and so then it just becomes about the speed and accuracy of the chase. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop. Okay, so we're back <laughs> again. There was a. I, we're sorry for the uh, continual interruptions. They're all going to lay down and take a nap as soon as we're done with this. Um, so lure coursing, just it's it's a fun one. Um, uh, doesn't take. Uh, uh, it's good for the lazy handler because you really you don't have to do much. You just let them run, and and you get to you get to yell tally ho, which is fantastic. Wow, they actually yell. You actually yell you and you you unleash your dog. You know, you're holding them at the starting line with a special kind of uh, like uh, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's a special lead that um, you know unclips instantly. And and you yell tally ho, and you release the hounds, and they run after their plastic bags. And it's they fantastic. go like thirty miles an hour. Right? They go really fast. Yeah. I mean, the Salukis can go 40, 45 40 miles, miles an, hour. an hour. Wow. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, there's another form of lure cor- or of coursing. Uh, it's called open field coursing, which is much more hardcore. And this would appeal to people who are outdoors people and hunter types because this is a live prey. Uh, coursing event, which I know will be, um, <laughs> oh gosh, dog's barking again. It's okay. Um, Let's keep going. It, it's controversial. And of course, not everybody is going to approve of that. I personally don't think I can do it, even though I see the appeal because this takes sight hounds to their, the core of their being, which is running through wild 
wild areas hunting live prey. It's what they were bred and born to do. Um, and there's people who don't feel a lot of sympathy for hares, and that's what they, they hunt is um, hares, jackrabbits, not not cottontails who can't run fast enough, so it's not fair no. sporting. Um, so they, they run after jackrabbits. Um, they In here in California, they go to like the high desert, I think often these kind of very open sagebrush scrub areas, um, and they go out far enough that – even though we're not in a fenced field, they're, they're safe enough to let the dogs loose because there's just no cars around. This means that the handler um, has to hike. I mean, they'll, they'll be walking maybe 10 miles a day um, and carrying a pack. So this is for outdoorsy types, athletic types, hunting types. Um, and they, uh, they, yeah, they go out in the field and everybody is looking for prey and they, they release the dogs. It, it, it sounds. I kind of like to do a walk along, you know, and see what or it's just like. See it at least. Right? I like to see it, but I don't know if I. I just feel bad for the jackrabbits. I don't know. Uh, at any rate, um, that's that's another option for your athletic types. Um, well, then there's a just standard obedience, which probably everyone should do a little bit of. Everybody that, right? should do a little bit of obedience if you have a dog. Um, there's um, the most basic obedience is a program called Canine Good Citizen. Uh, well, there's puppy obedience too, but canine good citizen is uh, is a, a little degree that you can work towards with your dog with like a few classes, and then you take a test at the end, and it's just like, you know, do you you know um, you don't jump up on people, you you can kind of heal, you can sit and stay. Come when called, is that one? Maybe of them? come when called uh, for a short distance. It's. Um, it's it's uh, not too hard to do, but it's a really good first step. Uh, it'd be a good thing for a kid to do with their dog as a first step. Um, toward, and if you like it and if your dog seems to like um, obedience, then there's a whole world of very, very elaborate um, obedience. There's many different types of obedience. There's something called rally, which is a kind of uh, – obedience is a more of a game where there's little signs. You, you walk through a, a kind of a course and you, you stop in front of a sign and the sign tells you what to do at that moment. Um, and you do, you execute that, that act and then you go on to the next sign. Um, and then there's more formal competitive obedience, which can be, you know, it's very demanding. It's which very precise. Which we did precise. with the Doberman. Did we he did, get a title? I can't remember. He had like first level obedience. We, I didn't, I personally don't. He wasn't actually that good at it either. Well, I didn't, I think it's partially because I don't like obedience Mm. very much because it's just not how my brain works. Um, I'm not, I just don't have the stick to itiveness to be that precise um, and that consistent. Uh, I'm much more flaky. I do remember one where you had to send him out to get. To go somewhere? Yeah, you, I think there's a send out to get something and to come back. Right. There's a, I and there's extended. I almost took my finger off one time because you had to be careful with Doberman not to get your finger in the collar because he was so powerful. Oh. And he would take off with this oh, like, yeah. crazy he, Crazy power. burst of speed, yeah. yeah, and take your hand with it. Yeah. Right. Um, but for people with the, with the right mindset and for dogs who like to work you know, who really like to work for rewards or for their toy, uh, you know, it's a great way to, to burn energy and to bond. Uh, it's fantastic. And then there's all sorts of weird niche sports that you Well, you, you had one called about. Barn Hunt. Right? Yeah, I, I need to look up Barn Hunt um, and find out more about it. I only have hearsay that people have told me, and so I don't know if this is accurate, so I'm spreading rumors. But Barn Hunt is... Um, 
it's a sport where um, uh, it's rat hunting in a with like safety protocols around it. So for the rats, for the rats, and right. for the dogs, you don't want the dogs to get like a bit in the face or whatever. So oh, right. what they do is they have like I believe there is a network of like PVC pipe um, and with rats in the <laughs> PVC pipes and the. Dogs have to find where the rats are by scent, uh, but they can't g- actually get to the rat. And I think it might actually all be hidden under hay or something like that. And 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 the dogs go romping around looking for the rats in the tubes. Which imagine little terriers. Little terriers would just be so happy yeah. about that. But I, I would like to try it with with Ivan. Um, that's that sounds interesting. Um, there are more like just like that's kind of like the. Lure coursing, which is coursing the uh, plastic bag versus open field coursing, which is coursing the live hair. The, the barn hunt is sort of like the plastic bag version of um, there's a, there is terrier, there's some sort of terrier hunting um, sport, which unfortunately I cannot give you the name of. It's in little tunnels. They actually let them hunt live yeah. prey, which is, of course, if you have a terrier, you know that they are killers. And this is what they are bred to do is to kill vermin. Uh, and they're almost unstoppable when given the opportunity to do so. And so that's a sport where a little bit like open field coursing for the hounds is is, is giving them the chance to do what they do best. Um, and again, that would be controversial, but it exists. Um, uh, there's so a, there's, there's a herding bunch. too. There's herding for the herding dogs. Uh, there's so many things you can do with your dogs. It's amazing. Keep them busy. Uh, keep them busy. A busy, a busy dog is a happy dog. A busy dog is a dog who's not chewing on your furniture, chasing your cats around. Um, uh, they're healthier and happier. Uh, you know, they go stir crazy um, when they don't have anything to do. So, so take your dog out and do something fun with them. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's it for this episode. Now we need to find some guests. I've been very bad about that. Sorry about this podcast being so late, but it's been late. There's been a lot of work around the house. Anyways, to leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. (laughs) (laughs) You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our closing theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.